This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Keith Thompson about his book um, titled Born to be Hanged, the epic story of the gentleman pirates who raided the South Seas, rescued a princess, and stole a fortune, published by Little Brown in 2022. In the book, Keith guides us through this particular group of pirates who somehow managed to do a surprising number of things. Um, Although they set out with a relatively small mission, it quickly balloons far beyond that. Um, And through the lens of this particular group, um, kind of end up interacting with um, a whole bunch of different things happening in the South Seas um, during kind of the age of piracy. So it's a really interesting book for what it kind of tells us factually Um, It's also incredibly fun to read. So it succeeds on a lot of different levels. And I'm really excited to welcome you, Keith, to the podcast. Thanks. And thanks for the nice things you said. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. Well, um, as you may have gathered, my name is Keith Thompson, and I've written six novels. Uh, The first one was called Pirates of Pensacola. And during the course of it, I came across uh, the journal of a pirate named Basil Ringrose, who was an Englishman who uh, lived in the 17th century. And I was struck by the sort of singularity of the journal because I, I, I had never seen a, a pirate journal before. And criminals don't conventionally keep records of their crimes. And more than that, um, it was a really good story about a raid that he participated on of the Pacific uh, in 1680 to 1681. He was a an accountant, basically, um, a shipboard accountant who longed to have action. Uh, he was highly educated and he, he, he longed to have, for adventure. And he uh, joined with this group of 360 or so uh, buccaneers who raided the Pacific. Um, and it's it's such a good story that I was surprised that nobody ever wrote a book about it. And the more I looked into it, I'd find these maritime historians in the 18th century uh, asking the same question: Why has no one ever written a book about it? And I, um, Mansfield, the great maritime historian, and I don't know, circa 1900, um, posed the same question. And in the advent of cinema, uh, whenever that was 1920 or so, I found somebody saying, how has this never been a movie? And so I pleaded with my literary agent to get me a contract with a book publisher, um, 
to 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 write this story. It just totally kicks fiction's ass, and uh, so I decided to write a nonfiction book. And luckily, uh, Little Brown signed on. So there you have it. I'm glad I'm not the only one who um, read this and went, wow, wait, I can imagine this as a film. Um, like even the small side characters, the way that they're described and the kind of richness of detail you clearly had access to um, just made it incredibly vivid. Um, so I am really surprised that no one's made it a film, but I'm glad you've written it as a book. Um, and so one of the things that I think enables it to be so cinematic and so vivid is just how much detail we have about these people. And you you mentioned already kind of the diary um, of one of them, but can you maybe tell us a bit more about kind of the source material we have, or essentially how do we know so much about these people? Well, you have Ring Rose's journal, and he, he was an educated guy. He spoke, spoke Latin fluently. He was really a, a brilliant mathematician and a natural navigator. Um, and uh, he was a good writer, and he wrote 60,000 words about their day-to-day uh, activities uh, for two years. Um, and it's just a, it's a singular resource. It really sort of puts you on, uh, uh, on the ship with, with, with uh, this crew. Uh, also, the uh, captain, Bartholomew Sharp, kept a journal. It was much shorter than... Um, than ring roses and it really didn't he didn't implicate himself very often and it was largely self-aggrandizing but he's really a character he's sort of the primogenitor of the johnny depp character in the parts of the caribbean movies what's his name jack jack sparrow he you know perpetually had a bottle of of wine if not rum in hand and um was uh a little bit crazy in an endearing way. Um, and he, he had a, supplied a really unique take also on this, in this crew was the, uh, naturalist, uh, William Dampier, who is far and away the best known of the crew members only because he went on to become Darwin before Darwin was Darwin. And he, he wrote a little bit about, um, the expedition. He absolutely, said nothing that would implicate him. He just sort of claimed to be along with these pirates uh, so that he could pursue his interest in botany um, and uh, naturalism. Um, However, uh, in the course of that, he gives us incredibly vivid and scientifically accurate descriptions of the flora and fauna um, along the way. Um, Two other pirates um, wrote accounts of this Afterwards, uh, the, the the trial that they went on in London in um, 1682 was pretty famous. So these guys probably cashed in on, on that. And uh, finally, uh, the most unvarnished take uh, is that of uh, a seaman named Edward Povey, who um, was caught by... Uh, the English authorities toward the end of the expedition. And in order to save himself from hanging, he was forced to sit down and write an entire account of the expedition. So he, you know, uh, in the polar opposite of the others, had just laid out every single crime that they committed with numbers and details. So the sum total is um, 
just a, a really accurate, um, or not, I, I, I can't say for sure that it's accurate, but a, a very full um, picture of the expedition. Amazing. That's incredibly, an incredibly cool resource to have. Um, and I'm sure reading them was really interesting, though I imagine you probably had to kind of excavate it as well and compare across the different accounts. And I'm guessing they didn't always agree with each other. Well, um, there, there were discrepancies. Uh, for instance, um, very early in the expedition, they're uh, engaged by an indigenous chieftain in Panama um, to um, help rescue his daughter, uh, who's been captured by the Spaniards and is being held as a, he, he thinks as a sex slave. And Ring Rose <clears throat> described the, the chieftain um, as uh, around 60 years old and Sharp, Bartholomew Sharp, the captain who, uh, you know, contributed greatly to that, that image of pirates always being drunk, um, described the, the chieftain as being 110 years old. And by and large, Sharp's estimates of things uh, tend to vary greatly from the other Crewman, uh, Ringrose, the mathematician, uh, who, who is also risk averse and, you know, decided it wouldn't be a great idea to get drunk with Spaniards lurking around the corner about to ambush us. Um, he, he tended to be a more sober, realistic um, source. And by and large, his numbers and accounts tend to jive uh, most with or be corroborated by others. So I sort of used him as uh, the, the baseline for, for what was accurate. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and so who were some of these, what were kind of the backgrounds of some of these guys that end up being pirates? You know, Ringrose, Dapier, Povey, Bartholomew, like what were they before they were pirates? How did they come to be pirates? Maybe one or two <clears> of them? Ringrose um, grew up in London in abject poverty. His father had a, uh, was a cutler. He made swords uh, in a, 200 square foot shop called the Golden Sword. Um, and Ringrose would sit there as a boy um, and play with the swords and uh, imagine himself, uh, you know, slashing his way to glory at some point. Um, and his dad wanted Basil to become his apprentice, but Basil wanted to go off and have some glory, not just continue the tradition of ring roses being poor cutlers. Um, and so the father engaged somebody else as the apprentice and ring rose went to sea. He was always kind of risk averse. So he became a supercargo, which is a job that's a lot less heroic than it, it sounds like he was basically a shipboard accountant and not until he was 27, did he finally decide to join this expedition to the Pacific that he'd heard about, um, and there were two other guys that were like him, were gentlemen who were interested in adventure. One of them was Dampier, the natural, naturalist, and the other was uh, a surgeon named Lionel Wafer, who was 20, uh, who was in Jamaica. Uh, he was a, uh, Welsh, but he had family there, and he was completely set up with a lucrative practice um, at a, a time when people were arriving from England and getting sick from tropical diseases and drinking rum as if it were water. He just had an endless supply of 
patience and, and income, but he, he just wanted more. He just wanted adventure. And at the time there was a book called the history of Buccaneers of America, um, history of the Buccaneers of America that had come out by uh, a Dutchman named Exquamelon. And these guys read it and it, it, it covered Exquamelon's own voyage under Captain Henry Morgan 10 years earlier, and it whetted their appetite to go on an adventure with pirates. So th- that that was Ringrose um, and mm-hmm. Wafer and Dampier. Um, most of the pirates in the crew, um, all but 30 of them were English, and they were mostly guys who'd had bad experiences on naval and merchant ships as sailors with whip-happy captains and who sort of bucked against the class-conscious society in England, which was especially prevalent at sea. Uh, So they gravitated towards uh, the sort of iconoclastic pirates who lived by their own rules. Um, And the the, the rest of them were just 'er ne'er-do-wells and and scoundrels who really had no better option than become criminals. They just became criminals at sea. Got it. And with that kind of background, right, some are glory seeking, some are seeking more um, of an escape, some don't have many other options. Um, Regardless of which camp you fit into, the sort of situation you described um, a few minutes ago of uh, being asked to essentially rescue an indigenous princess um, from captivity kind of seems like that would really be a setup that someone interested in glory would be very happy to go ahead and attempt. Um, But what actually kind of happens to them when they set off on this effort? Well, they had intercepted some mail uh, from Spanish merchants in Spain to to the colonies um, saying that, you know, we're, we're really concerned that Spanish defenses are crumbling throughout the empire. And one place in particular is just a, an avenue for attack. That's the, the Darien Isthmus, which is um, that a, a stretch of what's now Panama um, between the Caribbean and the Pacific. And these Spanish merchants said that the Darien Isthmus is going to be, it's an open doorway to English pirates if they want to come, come and attack places like Panama City, or as it was known then, Panama. Um, so the Buccaneers, after intercepting that those letters, uh, got the word out to other pirates and wannabe pirates in the area in the Caribbean, you know, via brothels and taverns and other pirate hangouts, and they decided that they were going to go attack Panama or Panama City, um, and. So it was it was just tremendously uh, appealing to them, and they assembled in the 365 island archipelago, now known as the Gunayala. Um, it was then called the San Blas Islands, and they needed a guide to to get across the Darien Isthmus, which was about a ten day hike in the best of circumstances through jungle uh, that I I, I I couldn't make it more than like. A quarter of a mile um, without a guide. Compasses are all but useless, um, and natural predators would kill me long before. And the the, the pirates weren't that much better off. So they uh, appealed to the the Kuna chieftain that we were talking about earlier. His name was Andreas. He'd been a raised and named in Spanish captivity as a slave, and he escaped and he rose to become 
the king of the Kuna people, or also known as the Guna people, um, in that region of what's now Panama. And he said, you know, I'll happily take you guys to Panama. Um, I'll happily guide you across the isthmus. But there's this other thing that you might consider, um, which is the Spanish outpost at Santa Maria, um, which was about two thirds of the way down the isthmus. And he said that his his interest was in his granddaughter, who was being held as a sex 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 slave, excuse me, um, being rescued. Um, but and and that that appealed to the pirates. Um, they were very much uh, you know into the sort of chivalry at the area the, the of the era, the Saint George and the Dragon mentality. Um, but I think what really appealed to them was the intelligence that. In Santa Maria, the Spaniards were panning uh, 18,000 to 20,000 pounds of gold every year. Or I should say the, the, the enslaved uh, indigenous peoples were, were panning it for them. Um, so 20,000 pounds of gold or even 18,000 pounds, that's, um, that, that would come out to, in, in, in the money that that the pirates uh, were accustomed to, which is pieces of eight, the um, silver eight real coins um, that were widely in use in the Caribbean at the time, that would be almost 12,000 pieces of eight per man. And for reference, as a sailor, they were only earning about 100 pieces of eight a year each. So th th this was th this would make them ridiculously wealthy for life. And I think that was probably the, the greatest appeal. They agreed to sign on and, and, and help him rescue his granddaughter. And with the proviso that if there weren't enough gold in Santa Maria, they would continue on to Panama. Mm. That makes sense. That's a very clear incentive um, and such a massive incentive as well that I imagine they'd be willing to, well, in fact, I don't have to imagine. I've read the book. Um, they were willing to put up with some of these really quite extreme conditions um were they then i mean spoiler alert obviously for the listeners who have not read the book but would you mind spoiling the story do they rescue the granddaughter they do um they uh wage successfully they're they're incredible fighters and and marksmen and they take the spanish garrison despite it despite being outmanned in 30 minutes and they, they rescue her and deliver her to her grandfather and her father who came along on the, on the mission. And yet they press on anyway, uh, gold being a, still a goal of theirs, I understand. Um, and they keep, as you said, they're, they're quite good at winning this battle. Um, and they um, then get engaged in one of the bloodiest sea battles in South Sea history, um, using some tactics that I definitely... If, if the word is not cinematic, I really don't know what counts as cinematic because um, just imagining in this this in my head was a lot. Um, can you tell us about this very intense and strange battle? Well, they had some bad luck in Santa Maria, which was that the um, locals had been forewarned of their arrival and evacuated the gold and took it to Panama. Um, the reason that the locals knew that they were coming is even though uh, the, 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 the firing one's firearm was absolutely forbidden, uh, on the trek, uh, across the Darien Isthmus. One of the pirates 
got mad at another one and tried to blow his head off. And in fact, it was their, their, their commander at the time who had made the rule that nobody could, could shoot. Um, and so the Spaniards in Santa Maria were forewarned and evacuated the gold to Panama. So there really wasn't a whole lot. Um, I think the pirates got about 20 pounds um, in Santa Maria. So they proceeded with to plan B, which was to raid Panama, um, which was the repository for much of the gold and silver that the Spaniards were extracting from all of South and Central America at the time. Um, and that was a fairly simple canoe ride from Santa Maria. It took them three or four days. Uh, unfortunately for them, um, the night before they arrived in Panama, there was a horrible storm and it sort of dispersed the the fleet. The fleet was now a flotilla of 60-some canoes and a couple of larger boats. And only uh, and, and five canoes, including ring roses, with about 36 men, found themselves in the Bay of Panama on St. George's Day, which is the morning of April 23rd. Um, and they immediately found themselves being charged at by three Spanish warships that were each the size of 747s um, with about 200 men, um, all of them armed to the teeth with cannons and well-rested. And the Ring Rose and the 35 other uh, buccaneers were in five canoes. They were exhausted from rowing all night through a rainstorm, and they had no escape. Uh, they they could turn around and flee, but these galleons were much swifter and would literally bow them down. Uh, and their, their their comrades were all well behind them, so they had no choice but to try to um, somehow defeat these three massive warships. Uh, They're outnumbered seven or eight to one. Uh, and that's what they tried to do. And I guess how they did it uh, would be something of a spoiler, although I guess I've just said that they did it. But they, they did manage to board one and, and then use it against the others, and they gained control of Panama Bay in a six- or seven-hour battle that arguably is the greatest underdog victory in maritime history. And my editors and people I've worked with on this all the way have said, well, I'll just say it's the greatest maritime victory underdog maritime victory in the you know history of the South Sea or of the Caribbean of piracy. But I, I, I don't know of another one that, that really comes close all in all. What made it so superlative as an underdog victory? Um, it's just simply the 36 guys in five tiny flimsy canoes taking on three massive warships bristling with cannon and uh, musketeers firing at them from a higher angle. Um, it, it's it's just it's just it's it's amazing that they were able to even live like five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> much less record all of it, um, right. and then survive to do further things. Um, right. Ringrose, I don't think he was taking notes during the battle, but he sat down <laughs> afterward uh, once the pirates were occupying Panama and wrote a, a pretty. Uh, extensive and gripping account. Well, it's good that he did so, um, and clearly some assumption that he also thought it was something pretty um, unique, that he kind of took the effort of recording all of it in such detail. Um, 
which means that maybe he hadn't heard of anything like that. So maybe it is the most, the biggest underdog thing. Um, we'll find out, I'm sure. Um, but of course, the story doesn't stop there. In fact, in some ways, it would sort of be easy. It's like, oh yeah, then the story stopped there. And then, but actually, they go on to have a whole bunch of other um, adventures, kind of continually, it seems, trying to find the gold and then trying to avoid being captured by the Spanish who don't want them to get the gold. Um, I'm obviously massively overgeneralizing, but the kind of idea of the cat and mouse going down the coast um, of South America was just, again, cinematic and in a lot of ways quite bizarre as well. The combination of like the super high stakes of, oh my God, is that a sail on the horizon that's going to come get us? And the, and now we are sitting here. There is no wind. We don't know when there will be wind. We're just going to sit here on the water waiting to, to dehydrate and die. Um, incredibly dramatic and somewhat unbelievable as well that like it's the same people who you know one ship one group kind of goes through all of this um and yet so obviously it did happen which is fascinating and i was wondering if you could maybe help us understand i'm obviously not going to ask you to tell us every single thing that happened to them both because that would take a very long time and also because you've already written it in the book um but i'm wondering if maybe thinking of kind of their adventures after this sea battle before they end up back in england um, one thing that I as a reader noticed was kind of from their experience, there were almost some like life hacks or like useful lessons to learn and um, that may not be practical in 21st century life. I understand. However, um, one that jumped out to me, for example, is that uh, trying to convince wild goats to get onto a rowboat. Turns out that's not going to work. Um, that seemed to happen a few different times that they got into trouble with that. I'm wondering if there are any sort of other instances that you thought were particularly entertaining or unexpected or any other sort of like life hack lessons um, from that sort of section of the research or the book uh, that you might share with the audience? I, I think to a large extent, um, the, the, the lesson is that if you're trying to plan um, military operations, you shouldn't get really drunk beforehand because it might impair your <laughs> decision-making and a couple of times they attack cities where no sane person would have and uh, Ringrose sometimes and and Dampier and Wafer would say that and they you know, I, I think the other you know their, their shipmates would acknowledge that essentially by saying well yeah no sane person but would we be doing this if we were sane and also you know, it's fun. So they, it, it really sometimes just, um, yeah, not a good idea to, um, probably be super drunk. Um, and, um, I, I think that the greater lesson overall that the story imparts to the ring roses and dampiers of the world and maybe to people today is that, you know, we're, we're living in this sort of everyone gets a trophy culture uh, of risk aversion. You know, the world, the word daring nowadays commonly precedes not adventure, but social media strategy. You know, somebody's embarking on a daring social media strategy. You've got law school applications that are increasing at five times the rate of population. Um, you know, liability insurance is a greater impediment to exploration than, than any danger is. I, I think that um, it's just a nice reminder 
to take risks and go on adventures because pretty much every time um, great things happen and or you have a good adventure, um, at least that's more adventurous than being an accountant was for Ringrose. Fair enough. Um, I think that's a good uh, immediate piece of advice as well as a larger lesson. Um, So thank you for sharing that. Um, And yet the adventures don't really end well, or at least they don't seem for a while like they're going to end well for this group because after they manage to escape all manner of um, confusion and conflict, some of which is definitely self-inflicted, they end up on trial for piracy in England. So how did they end up on trial? And then what happened to, what was the outcome of the trial? Well, um, they they made it back to, uh, a, a number of them made it back to England, um, including the captain, Bartholomew Sharp, and he would uh, sit at the inn that he was staying at and uh, sit in the pub and, and get drunk and tell stories of his adventures. And um, the, the word got around and it got as far as uh, the Span- Spain's ambassador to England who uh, protested, uh, at the court of St. James, he, he's, uh, said, why are these guys not arrested? They stole like 2 million, um, pieces of eight worth of Spanish goods and killed a bunch of Spaniards. Well, you know, why, why haven't they been apprehended yet? And as a result of his, um, protests, uh, sharp, and two of his closest associates were captured by the English authorities and put on trial for piracy. Um, and the the prosecution had a really good case against them uh, because they they had done all of those things. They also had Edward Povey's statement, a twenty thousand word statement, listing all of um, their crimes and. Um, they had a few witnesses along the way. The pirates kept some of the captured Spaniards as servants or slaves or just prisoners. And, and some of those guys testified against them at this, this trial. Um, however, um, along the way, the pirates managed to capture a book called, uh, I'm not even sure how you pronounce it, a Deratero, a, a book of maps and charts that the Spaniards um had um, of the South Sea, which was uh, just totally, literally uncharted waters for the English and in- incredibly valuable to military intelligence. In fact, when the pirates uh, captured it uh, just during a random raid of a Spanish ship, um, they thought to themselves, well, this is worth the king's ransom. Let's go home and figure out some way to capitalize on this because it's worth much more than we'll ever, you know, much more money than than we'll ever make out here just randomly raiding prepared Spanish cities and and uh, and and ships. And in fact, it was what got them off because it was worth so much to um, to the English government that they sort of intervened and, um, I, I guess, helped the Admiralty Court uh, find the pirates innocent. Fascinating. Um, it's really interesting, the idea of kind of, this is worth a king's ransom being a phrase that gets thrown around, and then this being an instance where, well, actually, that is kind of what it was. 
Um, who knows? Maybe that's where the phrase comes from. I mean, probably not. But that would make for a good story. Um, so I want to sort of, as we get towards the end of the book, um, I'd love to ask a little bit about kind of the pirates, what happened to them after the acquittal. Um, and particularly, obviously, we don't know everything that happens to all of them. Um, but what some of them, a few of them go on to be, uh, kind of stay involved with the South Seas um, and kind of leave England to go back over there. Um, and you talk about how uh, one or two of them, I believe, become sort of involved in the English colonization of the South Seas area. Um, kind of how did that happen or what was the involvement there? Um, so Lionel Wafer, the surgeon, uh, at one point was uh, was separated from the company and he was severely injured uh, in a gunpowder explosion, just debilitated his leg. Um, and his shipmates had, they were in the middle of nowhere in the jungle and the Darien Isthmus, and his shipmates had no choice but to just leave him uh, with, in a Kuna village. Um, and the Kuna nursed him to health um, over a long period of time. And he regained his ability to walk, and he sort of uh, utilized his medical know-how, and he saved the life of uh, the local chieftain, uh, his wife. Um, he ended up becoming a minor deity among the Kuna people, and he uh, was considering marrying a, a princess and and living there, but he just wanted to go home and not, he, he decided against it. He decided to go back to England and he became instrumental toward the end of the century in the British Scottish efforts to colonize the Darien um, province, uh, which happened. I, I think 1500 or so people uh, went over there to settle it. And within six months, tropical diseases had killed just about all of them. Um, and the jungle has since eaten the the town they built, and it was it was a huge failure. Interesting, um, and of course, there's more detail in the book. So, apologies to listeners, this has been kind of the highlights tour of it. Um, but thank you for kind of uh, Keith sharing the some of the pieces of it and kind of giving us taste of uh, the book that you've written and how many different adventures this relatively small group of people kind of ended up on. Um, and so, I'd love to ask a little bit about the kind of behind the scenes side. Uh, we talked at the beginning about kind of the source material and the richness of it, um, how you kind of had to deal with the fact that they weren't always telling the truth or they weren't always agreeing with each other in their diaries and how you reconciled that. Um, but was there anything throughout the research process or the writing process of this, um, besides, of course, just discovering the diary in the first place, that was like surprising to you? Well, I should add that there there are there, there's quite a bit of documentation from Spanish officials that susses with the the pirates' accounts of events, and um, so there, there's there there isn't huge doubt over the fact that, for instance, they waged this sea battle in uh, Panama Bay on April twenty third, sixteen eighty. But I I think that what was most surprising to me was what it's like to be a pirate on, on an expedition. I, I, you know, certainly they're drinking a lot and getting scurvy a lot and every now and then they capture a prize, but 
uh, like a lot of things, what just the, the odd details that you just completely don't expect um, are probably the, the most compelling. And far and away, number one on that list was how much these guys love chocolate. Um, they would get cocoa <laughs> beans. And I, 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 I seriously, they mention it more in their journals than rum and women uh, combined, maybe even more so than gold. In fact, at, at one point, um, they decided to attack Guayaquil and Ecuador because they believed that it had the best cocoa beans in the world, or cacao, as they refer to it. Um, and Dampier, the naturalist, launched into huge arguments in his journal about how, no, in fact, uh, you know, the Venezuela area has far superior beans. And he, he gave, you know, reasons about the purity of the cacao butter, but these guys would, 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 would make it. And, uh, they, they were just really into chocolate. Who knew? I mean, who can blame them really? Um, I say this as a massive chocolate fiend myself. Um, I would personally be much more motivated to do things uh, if I had chocolate as my reward rather than wine or rum or gold. So I think they have a point. Um, so as my last question then, uh, the book obviously was a lot of effort um, and getting it from research to book to being published book is obviously a, a long and arduous process that I think many of our listeners might be familiar with. Um, so there's a lot of kind of uh, empathy, I suppose, there. Um, but the book is now out. People can read it. So are you working on something next? I, I'm doing another nonfiction book for Little Brown that'll come out in the spring of 2024. It's called The Eldorado, and it's about Sir Walter Raleigh's efforts to find Eldorado in um, Guiana. Amazing. Well, that sounds like another fun project. Um, so best of luck with that. But while you are off investigating um, Eldorado, Read, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Born to be Hanged, the epic story of the gentleman pirates who raided the South Seas, rescued a princess, and stole a fortune, published by Little Brown in 2022. Keith, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me.